Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Co-op. This morning, I have the absolute pleasure of having Mr. Jason Weiner on with us this morning. He is from Colorado. Good morning, Jason. Good morning, Vernon. Nice to be with you. Thank you for being with me. Um, I know it's early in Colorado, but you're with the Colorado Employee Ownership Commission. Yes, that's right. I uh, was part of setting up the commission when it when uh, Governor Polis first came into office and We've established just a wonderful group of talented, engaged individuals, and uh, we get to meet with uh, the staff of the office and do some amazing things. I'm excited to talk about it today. Fantastic, and I'm looking forward to it because this is a whole state looking to figure out how to get more employee ownership. Do you know why the governor wanted to do this? You know, we're so fortunate. Governor Polis has been a huge advocate for employee ownership, dating back to his days as a business owner. Uh, he has started and run several successful companies over the last few decades. And uh, he likes to say that he embedded employee ownership in each of them. And I've heard him say many times that he believes deeply that incentives should be aligned. Workers should share in the value they create. And so when he went to the U.S. House of Representatives, he was a member of the, um, I think it was the Cooperative Caucus, but he was a real champion of employee ownership in the House. Uh, and that was before his run for governor. In fact, when he ran for governor, employee ownership was at the top of his economic agenda. And he launched his campaign, of all places, at an employee-owned grocery store in Colorado Springs and was just so excited to see employee ownership being uttered by a candidate for governor and now a reelected second term governor uh, who continues his commitment uh, to employee ownership, to cooperatives and to broad based prosperity. Broad based prosperity, broad based prosperity. That's like everybody. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, I think this is uh, really an enlightened kind of rising tide, lifting all boats kind of philosophy, at least that's my philosophy, but it really makes practical sense. Employee ownership that creates broad-based prosperity is about creating aligned incentives, uh, creating more engagement in the workplace. And we have several really exciting examples uh, of all phases where employee ownership has created broad-based prosperity. In fact, the well-known New Belgium Brewing Company uh, that was born and raised in Fort Collins, Colorado, uh, was has been employee owned since the 90s uh, and in its most recent iteration was a hundred percent ESOP before it was sold to uh, an international beverage company but that exit made uh, distributed six-figure um, amounts to hundreds of employees 
Uh, they like to say, I don't know that it made lots of millionaires, but it padded lots of people's retirements with distributions they wouldn't have otherwise received if there weren't an ESOP in place. So uh, the governor has been a real champion. The commission has been uh, really strong stewards of this. And the community in Colorado has really embraced it. So when you say $100,000, so that says a, an employee of this brewing company could have gotten $100,000 set into their retirement or 200000 or 300000 but six figures. There were hundreds of six-figure recipients of the distributions of that, of that sale, yes. And these were warehouse stockers. These were you know, people who may have been making you know, $20, $25 an hour. Uh, who are now able to say that they have a healthy, if not, you know, lucrative retirement nest egg. Several have gone on to do other entrepreneurial things with that. But, you know, ordinarily when a company picks up and sells, how many, how many of those companies can say that that prosperity was shared so broadly? Oftentimes it's the shareholders and some key management. But in this case, it was hundreds of their employees. I mean, they were I think over 450 employees at the time, and um, I'd say, from what I know, most of those folks walked away with with quite healthy sums from the sale. So, Jason, if if um, I've been around a few years, and if there's a company that's 450 employees, and if the owner decides to sell, who normally gets the money is the owner and maybe management, and that's what you just said. Okay. Normally the janitor or somebody on the line doing the brewing, they don't get anything but whatever their paycheck was. And likely a layoff. You know, a lot of these oftentimes result in uh, labor reductions and, you know, maybe some severance, but you're absolutely right. That's just the sad reality, especially now we see that in sector after sector. We see companies downsizing, companies selling, and what do we see? We see staff get cut. Very little safety net, very little uh, to speak of when that happens. But New Belgium was really a bright spot, a real counterweight to that prevailing narrative in America. So I just want to make sure I've got it and that everybody else out there has it, that if you're working on the floor of this brewing company making beer, okay, and you're making, first off, if you're making 20, 25 bucks an hour, that's much more than norm. If you were making 15, that might be what was considered minimum wage or even better than minimum wage five years ago. So you're making 20, 25 bucks an hour. So you're decent living in Colorado. And all of a sudden they say, we want to sell this. And Mr. Janitor, you're going to walk away with a check for $150,000 that goes into your retirement account. That just doesn't happen. I don't know. And that's on top of the value that was already in that retirement account. You know, these ESOPs are powerful engines of wealth creation for retirement. They're essentially qualified retirement plans in the company for which you work. So many of these folks had annual accumulated value in their retirement account and then their trustee for this trust determines it's in their best interest to sell and on top of their retirement account they also are getting these distributions from the sale of the business and yes yeah, we said you know on top of the retirement 
uh, savings they'd already accumulated. We're talking about, you know, multi-million dollar business. I don't know what the sale price was, but multi multiple of millions of dollars that gets distributed out after taxes and any loans. The employees are the shareholders in this case. In fact, the employees owned 100% of that company. There was no fat cat owner of New Belgium. It was the workers there. So they shared in all of that hard-earned value. It would seem like every worker in the U.S. would want to be in a co-op or ESOP or some kind of ownership so that they could get this, you called it, broad-based prosperity. I can't see why not. I believe so, yes. These companies routinely rank higher in employee satisfaction, lower turnover, better job training, higher quality, better pay, better benefits, lower failure rate for the business. And at a time when home ownership is really the only engine of wealth creation in America, the second being business ownership, I can't imagine why any worker would not want a stake in their work, a stake in the place they spend as much or more time than they do at home. Yep. Yep. That just to me seems like a no brainer. So given the opportunity, I have to imagine it's a really appealing proposition. Yes. And I say that as somebody who was an employee owner. In fact, I was a member of an employee owned co-op for a number of years. Can you say what company that was or how long you were in that business or? Sure. Yes. I uh, was an employee owner at Namaste Solar, which is an employee owned cooperative solar company based in Boulder, Denver, uh, Colorado. And I was there from 2009 to 2014. And I was a co-owner. I was involved at every level. And I was at the time I came in, I was one of 45 owners of the company. And at the time I left, we had roughly the same number. I believe now they have many, many more employee owners. They're still a cooperative. I wouldn't be surprised if they have more than 85 or even more than 100 employee owners at this point. They've grown significantly. So you were there five years. Yes. Okay, 2009 to 2014. So tell me, did they have much training for the employees? Tremendous amount of training. Yes, we put together a robust curriculum of business training, of culture training, legal training. I used to lead legal trainings about what a cooperative is. What is the legal status and how does this work under the law? So folks could really understand the ins and outs of business ownership. We used to call it the Namaste MBA. We were training business owners. We weren't just training workers to be good at their jobs and be happy at their jobs. We were training fellow business owners. And I know dozens of fellow owners that have gone on to own businesses, including myself. I, I left Namaste to launch a, a small business, a law firm, and then another business. Many other owners have gone on to launch incredible things and to become high leading, high ranking leaders in other organizations as a result of the training they got at Namaste Solar. And that was because we invested in people. We invested in culture as the root system of the business. Everything that flowed, flowed from training and investment in culture. And that yielded better engagement, better, all the metrics that I talked about, they bore out before my eyes. 
Training, training, training. Jessica Gordon Nimhard in her book, Collective Carriage, said that is the heartbeat of a co-op. Training, training, training. Uh, training before it gets started. Yes. Training while it's getting started and ongoing training. Continue, like you're saying, whether what the law is. And you have new people. You have people changing. What the culture is about. I like that. How things work. That's ultimately what I think these organizations are about is we're training for the individual transformation that's necessary for employee ownership to take off at scale. The systems and broad-based policy in America doesn't favor employee ownership. Employee ownership largely has resulted as a hack to the existing systems. It's the intrepid individuals and the leaders within these organizations that have pushed the envelope and normalized this. And what we're doing at the Employee Ownership Commission is grabbing the reins of that transformation and trying to normalize employee ownership as a mainstay in our economy and our community. That's as much about policy as it is about cultural transformation at the community level, but it starts with individual transformation. Everyone wants to see the case study. Everyone wants to talk to the business owner. How did you do this? Why did you do this? And guess what? It's never about the numbers. It's about the people. community. About people. people. We got to take our first break. That's a great place to stop, and we're going to come back and talk more about the commission, the work that you all are doing. Um, I love this broad-based prosperity. Love it. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that down. This is WOL News Talk fourteen fifty. Information is power. That's why we have this program. That's why the National Cooperative Bank has sponsored it for nine years now. They give you information so that you can go out and start your own co-op or if you're working in a business where the owner might want to retire, the employees can get together and buy that business in the form of a co-op or ESOP or other form of stock ownership. And this morning we have Mr. Jason Weiner from Colorado talking about broad-based prosperity. But Jason, you mentioned before we took break about the benefits of employee ownership. Can you go back over those a little bit slower so we make sure that folks got it? Now I got broad-based prosperity. That's money. What are some other benefits of this home, this uh, employee ownership? Yeah, the data suggest and has repeatedly shown that employee-owned firms have lower failure rates. The business itself fails at a lower rate. These businesses tend to be more profitable over the long run, less susceptible to macroeconomic trends, capital markets, stock market volatility, lower attrition and turnover rates, which in today's condition is of vital importance given the constraints in the labor market. They tend to last longer. Um, there's a built-in succession plan. You don't have this disruption when the owner is looking to retire because the succession is built into these models. And in many ways, they're, they operate slightly conservatively. There's a bit more sustainability built into these business models. They take risk, but they tend to take more measured risk. You have more people eye, with hands on the wheel of the business. 
Okay. And as you pointed out, I said, there is more broad-based prosperity. When there are good years or success, that success is shared broadly in all these forms. ESOP, which is an employee stock ownership program, a cooperative, an employee ownership trust, or some hybrid shared ownership structure. They all distribute the benefits broadly. So I know in a co-op, and I assume in an ESOP, the employees also have voice. If this, we were talking about the janitor on the floor or the person in the brewery making the beer, they also have a voice in what happens in that business. If you say, oh, we want to get a new product line, that janitor could have a say and that person online could have a say. And have you found that cause people to have, if you will, a better self-image, better self-worth, that voice? Absolutely. Yeah, you know, it's been known in the kind of organizational behavior space that the dignity of work is about much more than just the economics. It's about the way people are treated, the humanity with which they show up, their level of engagement. It's about the intangibles. And employee-owned businesses tend, although they don't always, they do tend at a higher rate to invest in the implements of engagement. New Belgium Brewing used to call it a high engagement culture, and they fostered that very intentionally. And people do show up in incredible ways. That means people are making day-to-day decisions that impact the profitability of their team or of the company as a whole. They feel that stake. They know that they share in the choices they make. So if they make a choice to reduce expenses or increase output, that's not going to some foreign corporate owner. That's going at some level back into their their pocket. pocket. Their pocket, yeah. That's shared prosperity. That means I understand how I impact the business and how the business impacts me. That's not a radical concept. It feels radical in my MBA. Okay. <laughs> it feels radical. It does. I, I grant that. Yes. But I think at a human level, it's not radical. Right. Right. It makes all the sense in the world. Dame Pauline Green, who at the time was the president of International Cooperative Alliance, says that co-ops have people to come out of poverty with dignity. And you mentioned yes. that dignity of work, that dignity of voice. And, and as I have studied this model what i have come it's more important to me i believe for the humanity for human beings to have that voice to have that dignity that self-worth now it it helps to have prosperity in terms of dollars in the pocketbook and the the bank yeah that helps a lot particularly when you know that my voice helps me to get that prosperity and if i could share a small a short story about this which is we're we're seeing, you know, in the last two years, we've seen folks leave the labor market in droves. And at first, you know, we had theories about where where workers were going and why people were leaving. There are all these uh, kind of pejorative terms for quiet quitting and the great resignation. And I'm not a labor economist or a sociologist who has studied this at any level. But my observation is that we're coming out of a time when Humanity and dignity and the intangibles of life matter more than just rote dollars and cents. Yes, absolutely. On Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we must 
make sure that people have security, economic security, security of shelter, et cetera. But beyond that, we can't just incentivize people to do hard jobs with purely increasing pay if the work is unsafe, the culture is toxic. And so we need to be doing things to surround people with positive relationships, a healthy work environment, the safe work environment. So I started a cooperative called the Main Street Phoenix Workers Cooperative, and it is a worker-owned hospitality group. We started this to go out and buy distressed hospitality brands, restaurants, and food businesses that were distressed in the pandemic and bring them into a group that would be owned by the workers of all of these restaurants. In the last two and a half years, we've uh, raised enough capital to buy two businesses. Both are third generation businesses. And in one of them, in both cases, we were facing toxic culture. We surveyed and studied and interviewed and talked to both uh, sets of teams, understood and got to the root of these issues and ultimately made major structural changes in management at both locations. And within the span of three months, we have had zero unanticipated turnover, maybe one. We've had maybe one person leave that was not intended. But in all other cases, we reduced turnover in hospitality. Now, this is only six months, and these are two small teams, but that is unheard of. The average turnover rate in restaurants is 150% per year per restaurant. That's the industry average. And I'm telling you that in six months, we've reduced this down to one out of a total staff at both locations of around 25 to 28 people. We've also increased pay because the culture has improved. They're showing up. They're happier. The, the average pay for baristas at our, at our coffee shop is $45 an hour. Baristas are averaging $45 an hour in pay. And if you do the math, yeah, that, that can be mystifying. That's 90000 a year. That's right. That's how much better. What's a barista in off? Colorado? What's, what's a barista? That... Somebody who makes coffee drinks at a coffee shop. They take so much pride in their work. They feel so connected to their customers. The service has improved so dramatically at this location that the regulars are showing up more than once a day. The word has gotten out that this is a great place to hang out. Our coffee shop is soon to become employee-owned. So we own this location, and the, the workers at that location are currently being onboarded into ownership of the holding company. Onboarded is training. Training. <laughs> training and culture building and making sure the foundation is healthy. Jason, what and we're is, seeing that show up in the numbers. What, what is toxic culture? You mentioned that two or three times. Toxic culture is usually rooted in poorly trained management, which means that people show up and criticize workers uh, for not knowing how to do a job for which they were never trained. Mm -hmm. It's people who are not properly valued at work. And it's people who come to work with disdain and apathy. Yeah. Yeah. Been there. It's unhealthy. It's unhealthy. Yeah. I would say that most Americans live, live and work in a toxic environment then. 
That's right. Where they're not trained and, and expected to do something that they're not trained to do and held accountable for that which they don't know how to do or maybe have not even been told to do. Okay, so I understand toxic. I'm thinking toxic is in the barista that there's somehow there's some fumes or something in the air that's bad for the system. <laughs> okay, these are fumes in the air of people-to-people -people relationships that's, right. that's bad for And that's what business is. Business is a group of people. Yeah, both that work in the business and then the relationship between the customer and the employee or owner in this case. Okay. Yeah. That is a great example of both toxic culture and then how you change that toxic culture to get $45 an hour, $90,000 a year for pouring coffee. We'll be right back. Right. I, I need a, I might need a job. <laughs> we'll be right back. Please don't <laughs> touch that down. 1450 WOL, where information is power. Welcome back. Um, this is Everything Co-op. My name is Vernon Oaks. Jason Weiner is our guest today out of Colorado. And the National Co-op Bank has sponsored this program for nine years. NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities by providing innovative financial and related services. And so far this morning, Jason has been talking about Governor Polis and the laws of Colorado and helping to uh, get employee ownership. And he's a part of the Employee Ownership Commission, the Colorado Employee Ownership Commission. And he just told us two stories um, that sounds like it's in one of those far off lands that People sold their business, this this brewery, and they walked away with $100,000, $200,000 to put in their retirement. They'd already started building up their retirement in a form of ESOPs. And then he said that they're starting a, I don't know, I think of Starbucks. I'm sorry to say that. But now it's, it's this people that come to work to pour coffee. And they were not wanting to come to work because there was bad relationship with management and there was just terrible and toxic. And then when you get into ownership and you get training going, then people like coming to work. They like pouring the coffee. They like engaging with the customer. And then they make $45 an hour. That sounds like way out there, Jason. I'm sorry. Just, just $90,000 a year pouring coffee in Colorado where the cost of living is a lot less than New York or California. Live fairly well on 90 k a year, I would imagine, in Colorado. And then if you had two husband and wife working, making that kind of money, and then also creating this broad-based wealth, it sounds like some novel of the future, and you're saying it's right here, right now, Jason. It's happening. I mean, these are numbers that these are these are these are the outcomes. This isn't a projection. This is happening. Um, our other location is also uh, we've raised wages there ten to fifteen percent for all workers. That's a fast casual concept. That one's a sandwich shop, but we've seen sales increase there. 15 to 22% year over year because we've instituted training, because we've put in place a new management structure, 
because we've made changes to the way they, uh, the, the whole set of operations, this is what conscientious management leadership can look like. And employee ownership has the, it creates the foundation. I want to be clear, employee ownership does not guarantee that the work will be healthy, positive, but it creates the conditions to invest in the long term because the fruits of that investment are, they benefit everyone. And that's different than a financial owner that's looking at short-term gains or to flip the business. We're doing this because the workers own the business. They own the fruits of their labor. So if we invest and we improve the outcome, improve profitability, they benefit. We're doing this not for us. We're doing this for them so that when they own the business, their pay is better, their jobs are better, they want to stay, and they share in the profits of the business. Seems novel, but in a lot of ways, it's a no-brainer. And I think we're just watching this national saga of business failure and downsizing and inflation. And you know what we're hearing today with the railroad strike, these are all, to me, foreseeable outcomes of a system that pits capital interest against people. And the reality is these businesses are just groups of people and the people who own the wealth of these businesses are people, but we've lost sight of the fact that we should all be in this together. And there is a middle ground. Nobody's saying that we need to steal from the rich and you know give money to other, we're talking about shared prosperity. The rising tide can lift all boats. It does lift all boats. These models have been around for decades, the ESOP has been around since 1976. The co-op structure has been around for more than 100 years. The National Cooperative Business Association, NCBA CLUSA, has been a national trade association for cooperatives. It's over 100 years old. These are not new structures. And so what Colorado is doing and what the commission is trying to accelerate is a, an ex the train has left the station. This is already happening. We've all, we already have lots of employee-owned businesses. We're talking about expanding and accelerating the transition to employee ownership that's already happening, especially as baby boomers are getting ready to retire. Wealth is being transferred, and especially now that we're facing you know, inflation and potential looming recession, it's now more than ever that we need to make sure that the foundation of prosperity, and business health is in the hands of as many workers as possible. So you're doing what I've, I've thought about, particularly when we, we looked at COVID happening. I knew in the black community, black, brown community is going to hit hardest because of pre-existing conditions health-wise. And so when you start talking about toxic environments, I'm thinking health, physical health. But there's a mental which goes into the stress, which goes into the physical also. But all of these restaurants talking about, the, you know, they're going to close up. I'm going, boy, wouldn't it be nice if the employees could come in and step in and take over those restaurants? Have you done any research, Jason, to see when somebody goes from, I don't know what they were making at 45 bucks, but I've seen where may, uh, people that clean houses were making 7 bucks an hour. They get in the co-op and they're at 20 bucks an hour. Okay, and, and now they, they have much more time to spend with their families. Have you seen what happens to the community, not just the business itself, that uh, coffee shop or that sandwich shop, 
What happens with the community around that business? I have chills um, to share to share another story. I don't have the data, but I do know anecdotally that there are lots and lots of uh, groups and foundations that are looking at the social and economic determinants of health. And it's it should be at this point no surprise that one of their key proactive strategies is to invest in employee ownership because the precarity of one's work, meaning the insecurity and instability of their job, whether it's because they don't know their hours, their you know, shift workers or wage workers and management, you know, is is keeping them on, you know, kind of in the dark about what their their shift is going to be. You know, they're not eligible for for benefits that creates massive stress at home that creates instability that that defers investment in education for oneself and family it often means people go without benefits we know in restaurants workers have to show up sick because they don't have paid time off or health benefits one thing that we're doing differently in main street phoenix is we're beginning to pilot a broad-based employer-sponsored health insurance program for all of our workers get that restaurant workers with broad-based health coverage so that people don't have to make that difficult choice of coming into work sick, getting their coworkers sick. There's nothing more devastating to a restaurant than when, you know, the cold flu or COVID comes into the workplace and takes down half your workers. You've got to close the, close the restaurant. It's right. happened to us. So what we've done is we realized that someone who's struggling or stressed about their health can't show up to work and be their best. So we've made the decision to offer uh, certain individuals stipends to cover necessary medical care so that they didn't have to worry about where their next treatment was going to come from. And it was modest, but it was an investment we made so that this person felt supported. Again, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If they feel supported as a human being, they're able and willing to show up to work to give their best because they don't have to worry about taking the time off or where the money's going to come from for their treatment. This was a no brainer for us. And it should be, and in many ways, you know, we had excellent benefits when I was at Namaste Solar. I know from, again, anecdotal uh, conversations with other commissioners that other employee owned businesses also offer better benefits because the people are the ultimate beneficiaries of these businesses. The people are the owners, the people make the decisions. And so the people decide to give themselves better health because with better health insurance, they can get to work, they can get to work healthy, and they can produce better, and they don't have to worry and stress and therefore physical yeah, ailment. It's a total misconception, you know, that people are inherently disengaged in their work. Again, I, I personally believe that there's tremendous dignity that humans – have an innate desire to be to contribute to build something collaboratively to be productive not to grind away their life but when people are disengaged that's not the root that's the symptom of something else and i think this wisdom that when we invest in people's humanity and the and the determinants of health, health that they can show up in better ways and in new ways and the data shows this the data is clear and I think there's a lot of efforts to kind of beat around the bush with, you know, profit sharing and engagement. And I, I applaud all those efforts, but I don't think they go far enough to really connect the dots and to show people the long term that this is about building 
a community that supports one another for careers, for lifetimes. And there are communities, there are cultures outside the U.S. that have that have proved this for decades, not just for, you know, three, five, ten years. There have been entire communities that since the 1950s have been operating cooperative ecosystems that support their entire region on, the, on a cooperative basis. And I've got friends there now, and they're reporting back just astonishing stories of healthful, vital communities with all the kind of social health and other indicators that we'd want to see here. It is amazing. And it's amazing that Governor Polis, as a business owner, got that vision, got that sight. And it's not very well known, but Leland Stanford, who started Stanford University as senator, wrote laws to create worker co-ops. And he was a railroad baron. And for him to get this labor is what makes the profits and they should share in the profit for him to have gotten that way back then and he wanted Stanford to teach it which Stanford has not I'm still on them about that trying to figure how to get <laughs> that into their curriculum but it is uh, those folks that get this insight and I got it you got it once you get bit by this cooperative bug or ownership bug and the absolute benefits to the individual, to their family, to the community, to society as a whole, it's like, boy, we ought to, this, this ought to be our mainstay as opposed to the capitalistic model, this co-op model, my view. Yeah, I want to I talk a little bit about that because Colorado is the first state in the country to have a governor proclaim employee ownership as a key pillar of economic development. Unconscripted, there was no legislative mandate the governor issued an executive order in 2019, and I'd like to summarize it if I might. There's Please. three points to that order. This, to my knowledge, is the first of its kind, perhaps even in the history of the country. I don't, I don't know of another example where by executive fiat, the governor has set up an apparatus for employee ownership in this way. So bullet point number one is to establish a wide-ranging network of technical support for businesses wanting to become employee-owned. I, mean, I want to pause and say we have a governor that has uttered the words employee ownership, wasn't required to do so. This was on his own volition. This was part of his own agenda. So the first thing is to establish a wide ranging network of technical assistance and support. That means build an ecosystem, build the apparatus in the private sector to support employee ownership conversions. You can't just sit on a perch and sing the virtues of employee ownership if you don't have the technical support to actually make these transactions happen. So, the second one wait, Jason, before we go to the second one, I want to spend a little bit more time talking about this wide-reaching network of technical support and what that technical support looks like because that is extremely critical in the ecosystem. But before we do that, let's take a break. We'll come back and talk more about that technical support in this wide-ranging network, and then we'll get to the other two bullet points. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Everybody, this is Vernon Oaks. Jason Weiner is our guest today at Colorado, and we're talking right before the break about the the state. The governor uh, mentions uh, employee ownership, 
as one of his pillars of economic uh, development, economic success. And Jason said there's three pieces to establishing a wide-reaching network of technical support. And in a co-op ecosystem, I have it, number one, we talked about training. You must have training. You must have that technical support. Jason, I want you to talk a little bit more about that. You have to have the funding. That's where a lot of time the capitalist and the co-op doesn't work together, but you've got to have that capitalism. You must have that. And then there's advocacy. It's nice that the governor's already there, so it's not as much advocacy maybe with other folks. And I put in there promotions that, that cooperators normally do not promote. They do internally, but not out to the world about the benefits of this. And I think you'll get into that in the second and third. But can you tell us about this technical support, this wide-reaching network of technical support? Yeah, this is really critical. Uh, you can't really, as you said, build a healthy ecosystem of cooperatives or employee-owned businesses if you don't have the accountants, the bankers, the lawyers, the trainers, the cooperative developers. So the first thing is to build the ecosystem uh, to be able to handle the scale at which we need to convert uh, and, and satisfy the demand for employee ownership. So what we have, the, what the commission has done with uh, the incredible support of staff at the Office of Economic Development and International Trade, OEDIT, we call it, that's the state agency that's a cabinet level executive agency that reports to the governor. I want to emphasize this. The governor has a cabinet level director who every week is reporting on employee ownership to the governor. At the governor's request, he wants to know what's happening with employee ownership from a cabinet level position. So the technical assistance, what we've done is build a series of roundtables to organize and build capacity within the legal community, the bankers community, and the accounting community to organize the players in the state, build capacity so that when businesses come through the network, want to convert to employee ownership, the staff have a list of people they can refer who are qualified experienced experts in employee ownership. So we've been building that capacity. Uh, we've been investing in our local employee ownership development community. Uh, we've been investing in the Rocky Mountain Employee Ownership Center, the Center for Community Wealth Building, the Rocky Mountain Farmers Union. We have high quality development organizations here that support conversion, that support existing employee owned companies and OEDIT has been supporting them as, in many ways, the kind of the gatekeepers and the linchpin to supporting this, this community. So we've built a broad network in that way. Uh, so that's really item number one, was to make sure that this ecosystem was robust and durable. Well, in the ecosystem, which I didn't mention, is there are four different types of co-ops, and those co-ops are part of that ecosystem to help Right. create other co-ops so what are what what are these employee um, ownership companies doing i know you have a network so in your system how are you using the current businesses to help create more business or conversions yeah that's a great question that actually gets to the second element of the executive order which is to educate businesses and communities on the benefits of becoming employee owned so that education piece is really critical and we're activating the existing employee-owned community through a peer network. We have a peer ESOP network that's led by one of our commissioners, Kerry Siggins, 
we have an active co-op peer network. And those peer networks are there to provide support, education, encouragement, and inspiration to other businesses that are looking at employee ownership. This is not just an insular network of people. They do talk best practices. They do share what they're working on and how they're doing things well. But it's also a way for business owners and, and workers and steering committees to, to see who the mentors could be. So it is also a peer uh, learning environment, which we know is critical. Yes. You can't just have technical assistance providers kind of marketing services to prospective sellers. You need peers. Uh, peer learning, I think, is one of the most powerful sources of, of referrals and sources of, of inspiration for, for sellers. We're also building a learning management tool that will provide asynchronous on-demand learning tools, uh, learning modules and programming on employee ownership. So the commission is full of subject matter experts and we're building with OEdit staff, we're building a, a learning management platform that business owners can go to and, and employees can go to to learn about what is this? What does this look like? What do I need to learn? We are helping them with the training. This isn't something that every business needs to bear on their own. So we're building that and meeting them halfway to develop that training content so they don't need to invest in it themselves. Jason, how big is the market? I mean, how many businesses do you think will be converting or being sold out or in the near future in Colorado? We know that, um, well, the state is broke. The state is an interesting demographic, uh, demographically. Most of the geography is rural, uh, but most of our population is urban. We have this urban corridor we call the Front Range. But like most states, we have a significant uh, percentage of the population that are baby boomer owned, and they're the primary business owners in the state. We estimate around 25 conversions per year. We're, we're getting close to that. We've got about half of that at, at present. And so we're seeing an uptick, actually, in the number of conversions happening now that we've formed the commission and we've developed the employee ownership office. But there are thousands of, of baby boomer-owned businesses that are getting ready to sell. Uh, in fact, OEdit partnered with a group called the Exit Planning Institute to do a statewide survey of business owners. And I would invite your listeners to Google Colorado Employee Ownership Office. Colorado Employee Ownership Office. Right at the top, uh, you can navigate to find this uh, this report, and the report shows all the demographics of our business community and how prepared they are for succession. And like most places, most business owners want a plan but don't have a plan for what they're going to do, and that's concerning. Uh, baby boomers are retiring in droves every day, and we know that baby boomers are – they own the largest share of businesses in the state, like in the country, which also – employ an overwhelming majority of workers. Small businesses in America employ the overwhelming majority of, of workers in the country. So if the overwhelming majority of workers are employed by businesses that are owned by baby boomers, okay. and most of them don't have a plan, this is why we're calling this a silver tsunami. It's a wave of businesses that will need a plan, lest we want to see them either bought by out-of-state corporate interests or we want to see them close and, and have workers laid off and communities gutted of 
businesses that have been in the community for years or decades. So you don't want to see them close. You don't want them to be bought out by somebody outside of the community, maybe outside of the U.S., but if you can be owned by the employees. And I got that uh, you've got about 700,000 small businesses in Colorado, and three-quarters of those are owned by old folk, uh, me, 75-year-old uh, uh, or, or above or 65 to 85-year-old people own these businesses and looking for a way out. And too often the children don't want it. They may not be able to find some place to sell it, and they close up, and those employees have nowhere to go and no business. Now you come with another model. Employees, why don't you look at buying this? And so you said the second one is to educate businesses and the community. Educate those business owners, those silver tsunamis, folks that would love It's better off if they can sell it as opposed to closing it and get some dollars, get some tax That's right. benefits. This is their retirement. This is this is a way to to turn their hard earned to turn their legacy into retirement. Uh, it may not be the you know may not be the the price tag they get if they sold to um, you know a corporate buyer, but a lot of these small businesses are not really liquid businesses that can be sold. A lot of times we're looking at business closures. You know, it's really pick your poison. It's either sell to an out of state owner where the dollars leave the community, or we close the business, lose that community anchor, and those workers have to go elsewhere. This is a way to preserve not just a job, but a real community anchor. For all of the things that you were just talking about. a store on a main street in a rural town. It so, could be a small manufacturing facility in a small city in the, in, in the state. It could be a small print shop. It doesn't have to be a sophisticated, it doesn't have to be a technology company. I mean, we're talking about everyday businesses auto mechanic shops. In fact, uh, my law firm worked to convert an auto mechanic shop on the Western Slope, a pretty kind of rural area of Colorado, and they became employee-owned. Okay, so just in the last minute, tell us about this $50 million tax credit deal that the governor got passed through. I'm so excited. I think, I can't say definitively, but I think Colorado has made one of the largest investments in employee ownership in the country. In 2021, the legislature passed a governor-sponsored bill to provide $10 million annually, five years, $10 million, $50 million in tax credits to fund conversions to employee ownership. This applies to ESOP conversions, co-op conversions, and employee ownership trust conversions. These are tax credits that go to the sellers of the business. This is not, this is funding that goes directly to the business. This is a direct market signal to convert to employee ownership. Jason, thank you so very much. You've given us a lot of information. I uh, really appreciate it. Thanks for getting up and sharing all of this. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Everybody out there, we'll see you next Thursday. Please live cooperatively for all of the reasons Jason talked about.